Chapter Fifteen of Wolf the Saxon by George Alfred Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A meeting by the river. During the three days that elapsed between Ulf's being set upon the track of Walter Fitzurse and the departure of the king for the north, the boy had no news to report to Osgod. The young Norman had not left the bishop's palace alone. He had accompanied the prelate several times when he went abroad, and had gone out with some of his countrymen who still held office at the court. In one or other of the disguises Wolf had suggested, the boy had hung about the gate of the bishop's palace until late in the evening, but Walter Fitzurse had not come out after dark. On the day before starting, Wolf was with Osgod when the latter met the boy at the rendezvous. After he heard Ulf's report, Wolf said, as we leave to-morrow, this is the last report you will have to make to us. So far it would seem that there is nothing whatever to give grounds for suspicion, and if, after a few days, you find that the Norman still remains quietly at the bishops, there will be no occasion for you to continue your watch until the time is approaching for the king's return. Yes, my lord, but I cannot say surely that he does not go out of an evening. Why, I thought you said that he had certainly not done so. No, my lord. I said only that I had not seen him. He has certainly not gone out through the great gates in his Norman dress, but that seems to me shows very little. As the bishop's guess, he would pass out there, but there is another entrance behind that he might use did he wish to go out unobserved. Even at the main entrance, I cannot tell but that beneath the cowl and frock of one of the many monks who pass in and out, Walter Fitzurse may not be hidden. He would scarce go about such a business as we suspect in his dress as a Norman noble, which is viewed with little favour here in London, and would draw attention towards him, but would assume, as I do, some disguise in which he could go about unremarked. It might be that of a monk, it might be that of a lay servitor at the palace. You are right, Ulf, I had not thought of that. That is indeed a difficulty, and one that I do not see how you can get over. Are you sure that he's not passed out by the main gate? I have marked his walk and carriage closely, my lord. He steps along with a long stride, and unless he be a better mummer than I judge him to be, I should know him whether in a monk's gown or a servitor's cloak. It is no easy thing to change a knight's stride into the shuffle of a sandaled monk, or the noiseless step of a well-trained servitor in a bishop's palace. You are a shrewd lad indeed, Ulf, Wolf said warmly, and I feel that you will fathom this matter if there be aught at the bottom. But as you say, you cannot watch more than one place. The other entrance is not altogether unwatched, my lord. The first day you gave me my orders, I went to one of my cronies who has shared with me in many an expedition when our master deemed that we were soundly asleep. Without, as you may be sure, giving any reason, I told him that I had come to believe that the Norman I pointed out to him was in the habit of going out in disguise, and that I was mighty curious to find whither he went and why and therefore wanted him to watch at the entrance behind the palace. I bade him mark the walk of the persons that went out, and their height, for the Norman is tall, and to follow any who might come out of lofty stature, and with a walk and carriage that seemed to accord ill with his appearance. So each evening, as soon as his house was closed and the lights extinguished, he has slipped out as he knows how, and has watched till ten o'clock at the gate, it seemed to me that that would be late enough, and indeed the doors are all closed at that hour. 
you have done well ulf but has not the boy questioned you as to your reasons for thus setting a watch on the norman i have told him naught beyond what i have said my lord he may guess shrewdly enough that i should not myself take so much trouble in the matter unless i had more reason than i have given but we are closely banded together and just as i should do without asking the reasons any such action did he propose it to me so he carried out my wishes i cannot feel as sure as if i had watched him myself that fitz Urse is not passed out in disguise unnoticed but i have a strong belief that it is so at any rate my lord you can go away with the assurance that all that is possible shall be done by us and that even if he pass out once or twice undiscovered there is good hope that we shall at last detect him again after commending the boy wulf turned to the palace with osgod i feel half ashamed of having entertained suspicion of fitzurse on such slight grounds osgod i think you've done quite right my lord you know how the fellow gave a false report to the bishop of that quarrel with you at any rate should nothing come of it no harm will have been done as to the boys so far from regarding it as a trouble i feel sure that they view it as an exciting pleasure and are as keenly anxious to detect the norman going out in a disguise as you yourself can be when they get tired of it they will give up ulf at any rate was determined not to relax his watch during the absence of the king the more he thought of it the more certain he felt that if walter fitzurse went out on any private business after nightfall he would use one or other of the entrances at the rear of the palace and accordingly next day he arranged that one friend should watch the front entrance of an evening while he himself took post behind as soon as it was dark he lay down by the wall close to the entrance at which the servitors generally passed in and out the moon was up but was still young and the back of the palace lay in deep shadow a projecting buttress screened him to a great extent from view while by peeping round the corner he could watch those who came out and see them as they passed from the shadow of the building into the comparatively light space beyond many came in and out the evening was bitterly cold and his teeth chattered as he lay cautiously putting his head beyond the edge of the stonework every time he heard anyone leaving the palace the heavy bell had just struck eight when a man wrapped up in a cloak passed out he differed in no respect from many of those who had preceded him save that he was somewhat taller the hood of the cloak was drawn over his head ulf raised himself to his knees and gazed after the figure the man was walking more slowly than the others had done for most of them had hurried along as if in haste to get their errands finished and to be in shelter again from the keen wind if that is fitz Urse, he is walking so as to avoid the appearance of haste in case any one should be looking after him ulf muttered to himself at any rate i will follow him he is more like the norman than any one i have yet seen though he carries his head forwarder and his shoulders more rounded as he watched him the boy saw that as he increased the distance from the palace the man quickened his pace and when he came into the moonlight was stepping rapidly along that is my man ulf exclaimed he knows well enough that no one is likely to be standing at the door and thinks he need no longer walk cautiously feeling sure that even if the man looked back he would not be able to see him in the shadow he started forward at a run paused before he reached the edge of the moonlight and then as soon as the figure entered a lane between some houses ran forward at the top of his speed the man was but a hundred yards in front of him when ulf came to the entrance of the lane 
Just as he turned into it, the man stopped and looked round, and Ulf threw himself down by the side of a wall. That settles it, he said to himself. No one who had not a fear of being followed would turn and look around on such a night as this. Ulf was barefooted, for though he generally wore soft shoes, which were almost as noiseless as the naked foot, he was dressed in rags, and a foot covering of any sort would have been out of place. Always keeping in the shade, having his eyes fixed on the man he was pursuing, and holding himself in readiness to leap into a doorway, or throw himself down should he see him turn his head, he lessened the distance until he was within some fifty yards of the other. The man took several turns, and at last entered a long street leading down to the river. As soon as Ulf saw him enter, he darted off at full speed, turned down another lane, and then, when he got beyond the houses and on to the broken ground that lay between them and the river, ran until he was nearly facing the end of the street which he had seen the man enter, and then threw himself down. He had scarcely done so when he saw the figure issue from the street and strike across the open ground towards the water. Crawling along on his stomach, Ulf followed him until he halted on the bank. The man looked up and down the river, stamped his foot impatiently, and then began to walk to and fro. Presently he stopped and appeared to be listening. Ulf did the same, and soon heard the distant splash of oars. They came nearer and nearer. Ulf could not see the boat, for it was close under the bank, which was some twenty yards away from him. But presently, when the boat seemed almost abreast of him, the man on the bank said, "'Where do you come from?' "'From fishing in deep water,' a voice replied. "'That is right. Come ashore.' The words were spoken by both in a language Ulf could not understand, and he muttered a Saxon oath. The thought that any conversation Fitzurse might have with a Norman would naturally be in that tongue had never once occurred to him. Three men mounted the bank. One shook hands with Fitzurse. The others had doffed their caps and stood listening bareheaded to the conversation between their superiors. It was long and animated. At first the stranger stamped his foot and seemed disappointed at the news Fitzurse gave him. Then, as the latter continued to speak, he seemed more satisfied. For fully half an hour they talked, then the men got into the boat and rowed away, and Fitzurse turned and walked back to the palace. Ulf did not follow him. The meeting for which Fitzurse had come out had taken place. He would be sure to go straight back to the palace. Ulf lay there for some time, fairly crying with vexation. He had done something, he had discovered that Fitzurse was indeed engaged in some undertaking that had to be conducted with the greatest of secrecy, but this was little to what he would have learned had he understood the language. His only consolation was that both Wulf and Osgood had likewise forgotten the probability that the conversations he was charged to overhear might be in Norman. Had Wulf still been in London, he could have gone to him for fresh instructions, but he had started at daybreak and the king's party would assuredly ride fast. There was no time to be lost. These men had a boat and probably came from a ship in the port. Were there really a conspiracy against the king, they might sail north and land in the Humber, but though it seemed more probable that they would wait for his return, for on his journey he would be surrounded by his housecarls, and there would be far less chance of finding him alone and unguarded than in London. 
Had it been their intention to sail at once for the north, Walter Fitz Erse would have probably rowed away with him without returning to the palace. At any rate, it was too important a matter for him to trust to his own judgment, and he determined to take counsel with his master. He had not been near the forge since he had begun the search, and was supposed to have gone down to stay with his family who lived near Reading. He had hidden away his apprentice dress beneath some stones in a field half a mile from Westminster, and he presented himself in this at the forge in the morning. "'You are back sooner than I expected, Ulf,' Aldred said as he entered. "'I did not look for you for another week to come. Is all well at home?' "'All is well, master, but I have a message to deliver to you concerning some business.' The armourer saw that his apprentice wished to speak to him in private. He knew nothing of the reason for which Osgod had asked him to release the boy from his work at the forge for a time, but had quite understood that the wish to pay a visit to his family was but a cloak, and that the boy was to be employed in some service for Wolf. Guessing, therefore, that the message was one that should be delivered in private, he bade the boy follow him from the forge, and took him into the room above. "'What is it you would say to me, Ulf? Mind, I wish to hear nothing about any private matter in which you may be engaged either by Wolf or Osgod. They are both away and may not return for a month or more. I judged the matter was a private one, as Osgod said naught of it to me.' "'The matter is a private one, Master, but as they are away I would fain take your counsel on it.' The armourer shook his head decidedly. "'I can listen to naught about it, boy.' It can be no business of mine, and unless he has given you license to speak, I would not on any account meddle with the affairs of the young Thane, who is a good lord to my son. That he has not done, sir, but I pray you to hear me, he added urgently as the armourer was turning to leave the room. It is a matter that may touch the safety of our lord the king. The armourer stopped. Art well assured of what you say, Ulf? For myself I can say nothing, master but the young thane told me that he had fears that some attempt or other might be made from the other side of the sea against the king's life and that although he had no strong grounds he thought that walter fitz erse who had just returned here might be concerned in it he having reasons for enmity against the king therefore he appointed me to watch him he then related the scene he had witnessed on the river bank the evening before it is a strange story indeed, Ulf, and whatever it may mean, this meeting can have been for no good purpose. The secrecy with which it was conducted is enough to prove it. It is indeed unfortunate that you did not understand what was said, for much may have depended upon it. Well, this is a grave affair, and I must think it over, Ulf. You have done well in telling me. Has any plan occurred to you? I thought that you might accompany me, master. That I would willingly but though I have picked up enough of their tongue to enable me to do business with the Normans at the king's court when they come to buy a dagger or to have a piece of armour repaired, I could not follow their talk one with another. We must obtain someone who can speak their language well, and who can be trusted to be discreet and silent. Why were it but whispered abroad that some Normans are plotting against the life of the king, there would be so angry a stir that every Norman in the land might be hunted down and slain. Do not go down to the forge. I will tell my wife to give you some food, and you had best then go up to the attic and sleep. You will have to be afoot again to-night, and it were well that you kept altogether away from the others, so as to avoid inconvenient questions. I will come up to you when I have thought the matter over. 
"'Is aught troubling you, Ulred?' the armourer's wife asked, when breakfast was over and the men had gone downstairs again to their work. "'Never have I seen you sit so silently at the board.' "'I am worried about a matter which I have learned this morning. It matters not what it is now. Some time later you shall hear of it, but at present I am pledged to say no word about it. I want above all things to find one who speaks the Norman tongue well, and is yet a true Englishman. I have been puzzling my brains, but I cannot bethink me of any one. Canst thou help me?' "'Except about the court there are few such to be found, Ulred. If Wolf of Staining had been here, he could doubtless have assisted you, had it been a matter you could have confided to him. For Osgod said that although he himself learned but little Norman, his master was able to talk freely with Norman nobles. Aye, he learnt it partly when a page at court. But what you say reminds me that it was but yesterday afternoon his friend Beorn come into my shop. He had just arrived from his estate, and said how disappointed he was at finding that Wolf had left London. I will go to the palace and see him at once. I know but little of him, save that I have heard from Osgod that he is Wolf's firmest friend, and they fought together across in Normandy, and again against the Welsh. He has been here several times to have weapons repaired, and knows that Osgod is Wolf's man. I wonder I did not think of him, but my thoughts were running on people of our own condition. Ulred at once put on his cap and proceeded to the palace, where he found Beorn without difficulty. You have not come to tell me that the blade I left with you yesterday cannot be fitted with a new hilt, Master Ulred. It's a favourite weapon of mine, and I would rather pay twice the price of a new one than lose it. I have come on another matter, my Lord Beorn. It is for your private ear. May I pray you to come with me to my house, where I can enter upon it without fear of being overheard? Certainly I will come, Ulred, though I cannot think what this matter may be. It concerns in some way the thane of Staining, my lord, and others even higher in position. That's enough, Beorn said. Anything that concerns Wolf concerns me, and as he is in the matter you can count on me without question. Upon reaching his house, Ulred left Beorn for a moment in the room upstairs, and fetched Ulf down from the attic. This is an apprentice lad of mine, he said. As it is he who has been employed by the Thane of Staining in this affair, it were best that he himself informed you of it. When Ulf had finished his story, Beorn exclaimed, I will go at once and put such an affront upon this Walter Fitzurse that he must needs meet me in mortal combat. But even if you slay him, my lord, that may not interfere with the carrying out of this enterprise, in which, as we know, another of equal rank with him is engaged. That is true, Master Armourer, and I spoke hastily. I thought perhaps it was for this that you had informed me of the matter. No, my lord, it seemed to me that the first thing was to assure ourselves for a certainty that the affair is really a plot against the king's life, of which we have has, as yet no manner of proof but simply the suspicion entertained by my son's master. The first necessity is to find out for a truth that it is so, and secondly to learn how and when it is to be carried out, and this can only be by overhearing another conversation between the plotters. As you have heard, Ulf could have learnt all this if he had but understood the Norman tongue. Could I have spoken it well enough to follow the conversation? I would not have troubled you, but it seemed to me that at their next meeting it needed that one should be present who could speak Norman well. 
after considering in vain how to find one who should at once know the norman tongue and be a true and trusty englishman my thoughts fell upon you of whom i have always heard my son speak as the companion and friend of his master and i made bold to come and lay the matter before you thinking that you might either take it in hand yourself or name one suitable for it certainly i will take it in hand myself beorn said and right glad i am that you came to me a matter in which the king's life is concerned i would trust no one but myself and now how think you shall we proceed for it may well be that these plotters may not meet again for some time seeing that the king is away so it seems to me the armourer said and moreover they may in their talk last night have appointed some other place of meeting what think you ulf beyond said turning to the boy wolf would not have chosen you for this business had he had not a good opinion of your shrewdness and indeed you have shown yourself well worthy of his confidence i should say my lord that i must go on the watch as before it is most likely that the norman will sooner or later go out in the same disguise and by the same way as before and that the hour will be between seven and nine in the evening most likely between seven and eight in order that he may return from the meeting before the bishop's doors are closed for the night i will keep watch with you ulf were i sure that the meeting would take place at the same spot as before you should show me where they landed and i would lie down there in readiness but as they may meet elsewhere it seems to me that i must post myself by your side it would be better my lord if you would take your place on the other side of the open space for although i being small can escape notice you might well be seen by those approaching the door it will be necessary too that you should put on sandals of soft leather or cloth so that your footfall should not be heard then as i follow him i would run to where you are posted and you could follow me so that you could keep me in sight and yet be beyond his view for all our plans would be foiled should he suspect that he was being followed i will do as you advise come with me now and we'll fix upon a station to-night and afterwards you may be sure of finding me there between half-past six and ten should you wish to see me at any other time you will find me at the palace i will not stir out between eight and nine in the morning i must say i wish it were warmer weather for a watch of three hours with the snow on the ground and it's beginning to fall now is not so pleasant a way of spending the evening as i had looked for when i came hither Beorn went out with Ulf, and they fixed upon a doorway some twenty yards from the street down which the Norman had gone before. "'We must hope he will go by the same way,' Beorn said, "'for should he turn to the right or left after issuing from the gate, he will have gone so far before you can run across and fetch me that we may well fail to pick up his track again. It were well if we could arrange some signal by which you would let me know should he so turn off.' it would not do for you to call or whistle no my lord but i could howl like a dog he would but think it some cur lying under the wall i might howl once if he turns to the right twice if he turns to the left and you could then cross the ground in that direction and i could meet you on the way without losing sight of him for long that would do well Ulf, if you are sure you could imitate the howl of a dog so nearly that he would not suspect it i can do that Ulf said confidently i've used the signal before with my comrades and to make sure we'll go out to the fields and practice daily a month passed 
Harold was still away in the north, and complete success was attending his journey. The influence of Bishop Wolfstan, who was greatly respected throughout the kingdom, did much, but Harold himself did more. His noble presence, his courtesy to all, the assurances he gave of his desire that all men should be well and justly ruled, that evil-doers of whatever rank should be punished, that there should be no oppression and no exaction of taxes beyond those borne by the whole community, won the hearts of the people. They were, moreover, gratified by the confidence that he had shown in coming among them, and seeing for the first time in the memory of man a monarch of England in Northumbria. Ulf and Bion had kept regular watch, but without success, and Ulf's comrades had as steadily watched the other entrances. Bion had two or three conferences with Ulf. He was becoming impatient at the long delay, though he acknowledged that it was possible it had been arranged that no more meetings should take place until it was known that Harold was about to return. The armourer was perhaps the most impatient of the three. He was doing nothing, and his anxiety made him so irritable and captious at his work that men wondered what had come over their master. After fretting for three weeks over his own inaction, he one morning told Ulf to go to Bjorn and say that he begged to have speech with him. An hour later Bjorn returned with Ulf. I bethought me last night, my lord, Ulred said, while I lay awake wondering over the matter, whether these fellows are still on board ship or are in lodgings in London. Might be either, Ulred, I have frequently thought over the matter. Possibly they may have stayed on board their ship till she left, and then have come on shore in the guise of peaceful traders. If the ship did not return at once, they may still be on board, the armourer said, for the wind has blown steadily from the east for the last five weeks, and no ships have been able to leave the port. I blame myself sorely that I did not think of it before, but at least I will lose no time now, if you think that good might come of it. It would certainly be good if you could find either the ship or the house where the men are in lodging, but seeing that you know nothing of their appearance or number, nor the name of the ship in which they came, nor the port she sailed from, I see not how you could set about it. I will first go to the Port Reeves office and find out the names of the ships that arrived just before the time that the meeting by the river took place. She may have come in early that day or on the day before. They would surely send word at once to him that they had arrived. You might learn something that way, Ulred, but we do not know that the meeting Ulf saw was their first. That is true, but as Ulf's friend declares that he certainly had not gone out that way during the evenings that he had been keeping watch, it is likely that it was their first meeting. That is so, Ulred, and at any rate it would be well that you should make the inquiries, and that while we are keeping our watches before, you should try to gather some tidings of the fellows in another way. End of chapter 15